and let's jump in and I'm going to give you the lengthy recap, the previously on our soap opera, The Days of Jacob Catch-Up. We've been working our way through the book of Genesis and for the past several chapters our focus has been on a man named Jacob whose father was Isaac, whose father was Abraham. And the name Jacob means heel grabber, which is a way of saying that he was a trickster. He was a deceiver, a swindler, a conniver, and he famously took advantage of his twin brother Esau when they were younger and managed to trade a bowl of soup for all the rights and privileges that were associated with the birthright which belonged to Esau. As the firstborn, Esau was entitled to a double portion of the inheritance. He was in line to inherit the role of priest and leader of their family. Jacob wanted all that and he managed to get it all from his brother Esau. And then when their father Isaac was thought to be on his deathbed, Isaac called for Esau in order to give him the special blessing that was meant to go to the firstborn son. And you know what happened? Jacob got together to get that as well. He got together with his mother and they schemed and conspired and dressed Jacob up so that he smelt and felt like his brother Esau. Their father Isaac's eyesight was in pretty bad shape and he fell for it and Jacob successfully stole the blessing that should have belonged to his brother Esau. But there's a downside, as is often the case with lying to family members. His brother wanted to kill him. And as soon as their father died, that's exactly what Esau planned on doing. Jacob by this time is in his mid-70s, his mid-70s, and he hasn't really done anything with his life. So his parents say, you know what, you need to find a wife. You need to do something with your life, Jacob, plus your brother's going to kill you. So maybe it's time to leave the nest now. And they sent him back to his homeland the family's homeland, to go look for a good woman. And they sent him with practically nothing. Despite the fact that he was from what was likely the wealthiest family in the world, his father decided that in order to become his own man, Jacob needed to not get any help and he needed to start from the bottom. On his way to his family's homeland, Jacob has an encounter with God. Jesus specifically. And the Lord promises to bless Jacob, to be with him, to be with him no matter what he goes through. And Jacob is just so overwhelmed by the kindness and goodness of God that he responds by committing to follow and serve this God. That is his salvation moment. Jacob gets converted. He becomes saved after having this encounter with God. When he finally finishes his journey, he reaches his homeland, he sees this woman named Rachel, the hottest woman he's ever seen. And the news gets even better, at least it does in those times and in places like Kentucky, because her father was Jacob's uncle named Laban. The bad news was that Laban was a swindler and a trickster himself who was pretty much at least Jacob's equal in that regard. And he told Jacob, oh, you want to marry Rachel? Sure, it'll cost you seven years of working for me, seven years of labor. Jacob did the time. The night of the wedding came. Jacob had had a whole lot to drink. There was no electric lights. It was dark. There were bridal veils involved. And Laban conspires to deceive Jacob. And when Jacob wakes up the next morning, he's lying face to face, not with Rachel, but with Rachel's not-so-hot older sister Leah. 
The tables had turned, the deceiver had been deceived, and Laban says, oh, you wanted the hot one? Oh, I forgot to tell you, in our country we have a custom. You have to take care of the firstborn, 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 before you take care of anyone else. And Jacob gets his comeuppance because what goes around comes around, and Laban says, oh, you can marry Rachel too right now, but you're going to have to stay another seven years to pay her off as well. Jacob marries Rachel. He does his time. They both have a bunch of kids. And then Jacob decides that he wants to leave. But Laban says, hey, you can't leave. I'm being blessed because you're hanging out close to me. You're my blessing magnet. And so I can't lose you. Stick around a little bit more. So Jacob ends up sticking around six more years. And he strikes this deal with Laban where he gets all the speckled, spotted, and streaked animals that are born to Laban's flocks and herds. It was supposed to be a pretty rare occurrence, but God moves, God blesses Jacob, and Jacob ends up with this massive number of animals that are stronger and bigger, while Laban ends up with less, and they get weaker and weaker. After six years of this, Laban and his sons get mad at what is happening, and once again, Jacob's life is in danger. When the Lord comes to Jacob and says, it's time to go back to your other home, Jacob. Jacob leaves. Laban and his boys give chase. God tells Laban, back off. Jacob is my boy. And so Jacob ends up finally on his way after agreeing to a peace treaty with Laban and his 20 years in the land of Haran comes to an end scene right there. And now we come to Jacob's next test of faith because the Lord is always working to grow our faith, to stretch our faith, to develop our faith. And how do you think this test might go? Well, someone's waiting for Jacob back home, isn't he? Who's waiting back home with a little bit of unresolved tension? His brother Esau. It's been 20 years. Last time Jacob saw Esau, Esau was, the Bible tells us, comforting himself by telling himself that he would kill Jacob very, very soon. And it's not really likely that he had gotten over it. You imagine if you have a sibling and they steal your inheritance and steal a whole bunch of things that are meant to go to you, you're probably not going to be over it 20 years later. Maybe you're not as petty as me. So here's Jacob. He's on his way home, doesn't really know how this is all going to go down. God's told him to go home, so he's obeying the Lord, but he's thinking the whole time, like, like what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And that's where our story picks up today. Genesis chapter 32, we'll pick it up in verse 1. So Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So several angels show up and meet with a very nervous Jacob and they reassure him, hey Jacob, God is with you. And Jacob is, just as you and I would be, he's blown away that he's, he's seeing angels that have come to meet with him and he realizes they're not just meeting with him, but they're traveling with his family on this journey. And for just a moment, they've allowed him to see that they're traveling with him and his family on this journey. So he calls the place Mahanaim, which means double camp. He's alluding to the fact that this is his family's camp, but this is also the camp of the Lord because the angels are here as well. And he's blown away and blessed by this. Verse 3, Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. 
I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. So he sends some of his servants ahead as messengers. What a fun assignment that would be, right? Hey, go see my brother who might want to kill me. I don't know what he's going to do to you, but it'll give me some sort of indicator of what might happen to me. And he tells them, tell my brother that I'm wealthy now. I've got all this stuff so that my brother knows I'm not coming back because I need something. I'm not like that long lost uncle who shows up and happens to be in the area and happens to need to borrow $5,000 because he's in a real bind right now. Let my brother know I don't need anything from him. I just want to know that it's safe for me to come back home. He says, ask the all important question, bro. Are we good? Are we good? That's the message he wants to have answered. Verse 6. Then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, yeah, we came to your brother Esau and he also is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. So these servants go to meet with Esau and all Esau says is, oh, Jacob's back? Tell him I'll talk to him myself. Tell him I'm on my way with 400 of my men. Well, Jacob must have heard this and thought, there's nothing good that you need 400 men for. This, this is not going well, which is why we read in verse seven, so Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies and he said if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it then the other which is left will escape so he says oh okay first thing I got to do I, 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 he's coming with 400 men his, his first reaction is I got to do damage control uh, We'll divide into two groups. That way, if he slaughters one group, maybe the other can escape while he's slaughtering that other group. This is what Jacob comes up with after whiteboarding the situation out, after listing the pros and cons, after talking to different people, saying, what do you think? This is the best idea he can come up with. Maybe only half of us will get slaughtered, and the ones who are being slaughtered can be a distraction so the other ones can escape. This is... This is not a good situation, not a good situation. Verse nine, I'm gonna grab your pen, we're gonna underline some things. Underline the word then. Then Jacob said, and he begins to pray here, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, and then underline the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal well with you. And then underline, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I've become two companies. And underline, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For, underline, I fear him. I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. And then underline, for you said, you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. So notice this. Jacob's first reaction was what? Is is damage control. Damage control. His first reaction is to come up with his best plan to minimize the damage. So he plots, he schemes, he plans, he ponders. And only after he's done all that and realized, you know, this is a pretty bad situation. Only after all that, does he pray? Now let me ask you, what is the potential to make a bigger difference in this situation? Jacob or God? God. It's obviously God, and yet like us, 
right? Prayer is not Jacob's first reaction. It's what he does when he's run out of ideas and exhausted all his other options. Now we have the same mindset, and, and you know what reveals it is that how often do you catch yourself, like I do, saying this, well, all we can do is pray. All we can do is pray, which reveals that what we really believe is, well, there's nothing actually helpful or productive that I can do, so you'll just have to settle for me praying for you. Sorry. And God's got to be on his throne in heaven saying, are you kidding me? I made the universe in six days. I know everything there is to know about everything. And you don't think that, that maybe, just maybe, I might be able to do a little bit more than you in this situation. I might know something you don't know. I might have an angle that you're not aware of. But most of the time we pray as a last resort rather than a first response. And it should not be this way. But it's what Jacob does. And it's what we do most of the time as well. So write this down on your outlines. Prayer should be our first reaction rather than our last resort. Prayer should be our first reaction rather than our last resort. You've heard me say it before because it always makes me laugh. How bad do we get with this? Well, well, there's literally times when we will ask other people to pray about something going on in our lives before we've actually even prayed about it. Isn't that unbelievable? I think about that all the time. Where we're like, hey, can you pray for me? This is going on. And I actually haven't even prayed about that thing yet because prayer is a last resort when it should be a first reaction. But when he does finally get around to praying, Jacob models something that is absolutely vital when it comes to praying prayers that have real power. He reminds God of his promises. So make a note of this. There's power in praying the promises of God. There's power in praying the promises of God. This is what Jacob does. He goes to the Lord and his prayer is, I'm only doing this, God, because you told me to go back home. And you've blessed me. I mean, you've multiplied me. You've, you've promised that you would give me more descendants than there's sand on the seashore. You've promised to be with me, so, so I need you to keep your promise and not let my brother Esau kill me. And we might think, dude, you better be careful how you talk to the Lord. You know, he's, he's not some sort of supernatural vending machine, but I want you to take note of what Isaiah 45.11 says. I put it on your outlines. Isaiah records this. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, then underline, you command me. You command me. See, this is an invitation It's an exhortation, an encouragement that the Lord extends to you and I as well. God says, I dare you. I double dare you. Command me. I'm just going to let the tension in the room sit for a second so everyone becomes aware of it. Because everyone's thinking, command him? Jeff, that sounds a... sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel kind of thing. You know, the, the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, believe and receive confess and possess. You know, all those guys. Sounds a whole lot like that, but, but not so. 
Not so. Underline the first part of that too. Concerning the work of my hands. Concerning the work of my hands you command me. So what does God mean when he says that? What's the context? Well, God has just finished talking to the people of Israel about prophecies and promises that he's given to them. And what God is saying is he's saying, I'm giving you these promises and I want you to hold them up to me in prayer. I want you to remind me of them so that God will remember. No, so that they will remember, so that we will remember. And if you still think I'm off base, in John 15, Jesus himself said something similar. It's also on your outlines. Jesus Christ said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, what did he say? You will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Jesus says, if your life is built on my word, we're going to be on the same page. We're going to be in sync. We're going to want the same things. And so as you begin to want the things that I want for you, you're going to be able to ask for whatever you want because you'll want the same things that I want for you, and I'll give them to you. In other words, command me concerning my promises, said Jesus. David wrote the same thing back in Psalm 37 when he famously said, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. See, David was saying when God is the center of your life, when he's the thing that you want most, the actual desires that you have will come from him. It's not that he gives you everything you want, it's that he gives you the desires for the things that you want. So you begin to want the same things for your life that he wants for you. And so he gives them to you. He gives them to you. George Mueller was a man who founded orphanages all over the countryside of England uh, throughout the 1800s. And if you research his life, you'll find he's just an extraordinary man of faith and an extraordinary man of prayer. I don't have time to tell you the stories today, but you should go look some of them up, read some autobiographies on the man. He's, he's incredible. But George Mueller wrote this. I also put it on your outlines. He said, we are to argue our case with God, not indeed to convince him, but to convince ourselves, to convince ourselves. You see, as Jacob argues with the Lord, what's really going on is that he's reminding and convincing himself about the truth concerning God. As Jacob prays, you're the God of my father and his father, he is reminded, hey, you were with my father and you were with his father before him and you took care of them. You'll take care of me. As he prays, God, you called me to take this journey and you promised to protect me. He remembers that's right. You did call me to take this journey. I I didn't just dream this up. This wasn't some crazy idea I had after some bad pizza. You called me to do this, and you said that you'd be with me. Okay, just like you said that you were with me 20 years ago, and you were. As he prays, I'm not worthy of all the kindness that you've shown me. He's reminded, you know what? I did. I, I started with nothing. And everything that I'm scared of losing, I only have because you gave it to me. You gave it to me because you're a good God. And as he prays, you promised to prosper me and bless me on this journey and protect my family. He's reminded, so you can't be done with me because there's promises you've made that have yet to be fulfilled. 
as we wrestle with God in prayer, as we remind ourselves of his promises, as we remind him of his word, we remind ourselves, we convince ourselves, and our faith is built up. And that's why the Lord loves it when we remind him of the promises in his word, because we're really reminding ourselves, we really convince ourselves, and our faith is strengthened. So write this down. As we remind God of his promises, we really remind ourselves of his promises. We really remind ourselves of his promises. So do you see what the Lord does? He says, command me with my word and with my promises. But in order to do that, what do we have to do? Well, we have to actually dig into his word. We have to internalize it. We have to memorize it. And as we do that, as we seek in the word of God what God's promises are, his word changes us. And he changes us. He does a work in us. He draws us closer to him. And we become more closely tied to him. And we begin to want the same things for ourselves that he wants for us. But here's the thing, just to state the obvious. You can't remind God of what his word says if you don't know what his word says. You can't remind him of what his word says if you don't know what his word says. It's not gonna work if you just take a guess like, God, you said in your word that if I work really hard at my job, I would get a promotion. God will be like, nah, not even close. But if you say, hey, Father, you said in your word that I could be content in any situation because I can do all things through Christ, God will go, absolutely, absolutely. Now believe that. Receive my peace. Receive contentment from me. And the Lord will stir our faith in that promise. But you've got to know the word. You've got to have it in you so that it can come out of you. So write this down. We can't pray God's promises if we don't know God's promises. Can't pray God's promises if we don't know God's promises. Verse 13, picking it up. So he, speaking of Jacob, lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand. So he took some of what he had received, these animals in Haran, as a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Just pretty much a sort of classic assortment of animals as one would be apt to do at that time. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one saying, when he saw my brother meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, they are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau and behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, the third and all who followed the drove saying, in this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him and also say, behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, Jacob thought to himself, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present went on over before him. 
but he himself lodged that night in the camp. So Jacob sends his servants in wave after wave with gifts and gifts and more gifts for his brother Esau, hoping that with each successive wave, his brother's anger will subside a little bit more and hopefully get all the way down to the not gonna murder you anymore level. That's what the plan and hope is right here. Verse 22, and he, that's Jacob, arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. That's this creek, this little river. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. He has implemented his best plan. He's prayed, and now it's all out of his hands. And he's left alone on the one side of this creek in the darkness of night. And something incredible happens as we read, and a man, underline a man, wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And if your Bible has man with an uppercase M, that's because this man was Jesus in the flesh all the way back here in the Old Testament. Well, how do we know? Because the prophet Hosea wrote the Old Testament commentary on this particular part of Genesis in Hosea 12. And in Hosea 12, this man is called the angel, which is a title only given to Jesus in the Old Testament when it's the angel rather than an angel. And it's also told to us by Hosea that this is the same man who met Jacob at Bethel 20 years earlier, and we know that that man was Jesus. But most obvious of all is that when we get down to verse 30, Jacob himself will refer to this man as God. But the Lord doesn't have a message for Jacob yet. He doesn't say anything to Jacob. He actually shows up, appears, and he just looks at Jacob, and he gets in a wrestling stance, and he says, let's go, let's go. It says, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day, the breaking of day. So they're going at it. Jesus shows up, gesture says, let's fight, and they get into it. And it's neat to notice that what 20 years away from home has done to Jacob. You remember when when he left home in his mid-70s, he was a wealthy man, but his hobby was cooking with mom. That's what he loved to do, just loved to cook with mom, stay inside, play video games, not really do anything productive with his time, is kind of a wimp. But after 20 years of work, getting married, having some kids, now he's the kind of guy that's ready to throw down when someone shows up and wants to wrestle. It's it's amazing what family and life can do for you. So verse 25, now when he, that's Jesus, saw that he did not prevail against him. So, So Jesus goes, oh man, you got some fight in you, Jacob. I like that. The idea is not that Jesus couldn't beat Jacob. It's that Jacob's going all in. He's fighting with tenacity and perseverance. He, he's not giving up. It would be like being a dad and you're fighting a really scrappy 12-year-old son. That's sort of what this is like here. Then we read, he, that's Jesus, touched, and that actually means struck. He struck the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. So Jesus just says, oh, this has gone long enough. Bam! And just lands a blow that dislocates Jacob's hip, which, if you know anything about that, would be ludicrously painful. And here's the thing. Jacob still won't let go of Jesus. He's just holding on to him. He's not doing any damage to Jesus, but he's holding on. He's not going to let go. 
And he, Jesus said, let me go for the day breaks. Jesus said, that's enough, Jacob. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So Jesus has Jacob locked up, overpowered. His hip is out of joint. Hosea 12 tells us that Jacob is is weeping, but he's still clinging to Jesus. And he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So here's what's happening. Jacob is facing a situation where he believes his life might come to an end. And then all of a sudden, he finds himself in the presence of God. He's wrestling with God, literally and figuratively. And what Jacob realizes is that what he needs more than anything in the world right now is to know that God is with him, to know that God is blessing him. But even more than that, Jacob now realizes that the blessing he really needs The blessing that he's really wanted and been searching for his whole life is not the blessing that he stole from his brother. It's not the birthright that he dealt with his brother to take. He now realizes that the blessing he's been chasing his whole life that he's really been looking for is the blessing of God. That's what he wants. And if he can get that, then he knows everything is gonna be okay. And so what God did is he took all of Jacob's misdirected passion, all of Jacob's misdirected ambition, and he redeemed it. And now instead of all that ambition being aimed at things that were destined to disappoint him, he's now pursuing God at all costs, and he's chasing the blessing of God. Can I tell you something, church? Our God loves that kind of attitude. He loves it because it's an attitude of faith, because it's an attitude that says, all I need, God, is to know that you are with me. That's what I need. I need to know that you are with me. You see, if Jacob didn't believe that, he would have given up way early in the wrestling match because he would have said, well, what does it matter if I have his blessing or not? But that's not what he did. He wrestled with God with everything he had because he was desperate to hear God say, I'm with you. I'll bless you. And now check out how Jesus responds to Jacob. Verse 27. So he said to him, what is your name? What is your name? And I love the Lord so much. This is just so like him. Because in in one simple question, he gets right to the heart of all of Jacob's issues. He cuts right to everything. You see, Jacob had spent his whole life building a life on pretending he was someone that he wasn't. His whole life plan was built on trying to step into his brother Esau's shoes. And he had done everything he could to assume Esau's identity rather than his own. And now Jesus is asking him, what's your name? What's your name? And how much of Jacob had wondered for the past 20 years if he had only been blessed by God because he had stolen his brother's birthright, like it was some sort of magic spell? How much of him had wondered, does God actually really love me or is it just because I stole my brother's birthright that I'm being blessed? And now Jesus is asking him, what's your name? What's your name? What Jesus is really asking Jacob is, who are you, Jacob? What's your identity? You see, his whole life had been defined by living up to the meaning of his name. He was most known for being a deceiver, a cheater, 
a liar, a schemer. And now Jesus is saying to him, it's confession time. Who are you? Who are you really? What's your identity? What is your name? And in a state of complete exhaustion, he's been weeping from the pain of this dislocated hip. Jacob looks at Jesus and he knows that the one asking him this question already knows everything about him. Knows everything about him. And he said, Jacob, Jacob. He said, I'm Jacob. Jacob the deceiver. Jacob the cheater. I'm Jacob the liar. And now please don't miss this. Don't miss this. Because this is how our God responds to honesty and confession. This is how the Lord responds to us when we come to him and we're honest with him about who we really are. Verse 28, and he, that's Jesus, said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. Your identity is not going to be deceiver or liar anymore, but Israel. Your new identity, Jacob, is Israel. Israel means prince with God, and it means governed by God. You're not going to be heel grabber anymore. You're going to be prince of God. For you have struggled with God and men and have prevailed. And when Jesus says that Jacob has prevailed, he doesn't mean that he's overcome God or men. He means that Jacob has overcome all his struggles by confessing to God who he really is. Confessing his failures and allowing God to take over leadership of his life. Instead of getting bitter Instead of blaming other people, instead of being proud and stubborn, Jacob is now honest before the Lord, and that's how he becomes an overcomer. Verse 29, then Jacob asked, saying, well, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? Jesus just smiles, and he just says, you know who I am, Jacob. I'm the same God who met you 20 years ago in Bethel. My name hasn't changed. It isn't ever going to change. And then we read, and he, that's Jesus, blessed him there. He blessed him there. Jacob gets what he truly wanted. He gets to hear the Lord say, I'm with you. I know everything about you. I know who you really are. I know everything about your past. And Jacob, guess what? I still love you. I'm still with you. I'm still for you. I'm still going to bless you. And I'm giving you a new identity. So write this down. When Jacob confessed his true identity to the Lord, he was given a new identity by the Lord. When he confessed his true identity to the Lord, he was given a new identity by the Lord. And church, here's the thing you gotta understand. Many people love the idea that God loves them. That's not an offensive idea. Many people love the idea of a, a God who forgives their past. Many people love the idea of no longer being defined by their biggest failures. Many people love the idea of, of being given a, a new identity. Pretty much everybody loves the idea of being blessed. But not many people love the idea of confessing that they're broken, sinful, and in need of saving. Not many people like the idea of confessing that they fall so far short of God's standards they could never save themselves. They need saving. But most of all, not many people like the idea of a new identity being governed by God. I want the blessings. I want the past forgiven, but 
I don't know about a future that's governed by God. And the thing is that that type of confession is the ground floor. It is the starting level of a relationship with Jesus. There's no room for Christians to think they're better than anybody else because to become a Christian, you have to have made the confession that you are broken in a way that you cannot fix yourself and that you need saving by Jesus. The message that we want to hear is the one broadcast across our culture all the time. What we want to hear is, you're amazing. You're incredible. You're the greatest. Nothing is your fault. If you've got issues, it's just because you're a victim of what somebody else did. But to be a Christian, you have to look at God and you have to look at yourself and say, man, I'm nothing like you, God. I'm a sinner. I've sinned against myself. I've sinned against others. I've sinned against you. And I can't be perfect like you're perfect. I can't do that. I need saving. Jacob and you and I cannot receive a new identity from God until we've confessed to God who we really are. But the good news is that when we do, we find a God who loves us anyway, a God who forgives, a God who gives us a new identity in him, and a God who desires to bless us. It's on your outlines in 2 Corinthians. The apostle Paul famously said, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And when Jacob confessed his sin to the Lord, he walked away with the two things he had deceived his brother of. He walked away with a real birthright and he walked away with a real blessing. You see, the things that you and I truly want and desire can only be found in the Lord. Verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means face of God, For I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, it's the same word as Peniel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. And we will find that Jacob will have this limp from this dislocated hip for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life. Can you picture him limping into the camp where his family is and his kids come running out to him and they're saying, Dad, Dad, what happened? Are you, are you okay? And you can imagine Jacob would have smiled and said, Kids, I met the Lord last night face to face. Everything's going to be okay. And I know that it looks like I'm hurt, but, but this limp is the best thing that has ever happened to me because as I lean on the stick every time I walk, I am reminded that I'm going to need to lean on God for the rest of my life, which reveals a truth that many times we struggle with, if we're honest, and we'll talk about this, write this down. Sometimes the Lord has to wound us in order to do his work in us. Sometimes the Lord has to wound us in order to do his work in us, to stop us from just relying on the talents and gifts that he's given us, to cause us to lean on him, to lead us to walk more closely with him, to to drive us to him for peace and joy and love and protection and provision, the Lord has to sometimes wound us or or, or break us a little bit. And if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, then you know this. It doesn't make it easy, but, but you understand you've got to break down a muscle in order to rebuild it stronger than before. But what's really difficult is the wound that's sent by the Lord that 
that never heals. That's the difficult one, isn't it? Because it comes to us and we think, okay, Lord, message received. I've changed. I got the message. You can take it away now. You can fix it. And the difficult one is when that doesn't happen and it just stays. What's up with that? We think, God, there's no reason for this to go on. And Jacob's limp is a prime example, but there's another. Our brother Paul in the New Testament who, who authored so much of the New Testament and goes down in history as pretty much the greatest pastor and evangelist that ever lived. In 2 Corinthians, he gets personal in this letter he's writing to this church and he shares that God has shown him some incredible, indescribable things. God has given him revelation and insight that is just amazing. And then he writes this. It's on your outlines. He says, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. So in other words, he says, but in case these revelations God has given me cause me to become proud or arrogant or or full of myself, he says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. He says, so to keep me from becoming arrogant, God let this thing from Satan come into my life and torment me. And historians speculate that this might have been a physical issue. It's pretty gross, but it could have been an eye disorder that would have done something like cause pus to ooze from his eyes while he was speaking publicly and people just to go, oh, oh, oh. So, I mean, that'll keep your ego in check when people look away in disgust when they're listening to you speak. Or historians speculate it could have been a person who just traveled around with Paul making trouble for him everywhere he went. Imagine the most dislikable person who's completely out to get you and every time you go somewhere, they're there just waving at you. It could have been something like that. But whatever it was, the point is, it was from Satan, God allowed it, and it sucked for Paul. And then he says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So Paul prayed, Lord, take it away, heal me, deliver me. And let me just tell you, when the apostle Paul says he prayed, we don't need to be like, did you really? Did you really, Paul? He prayed. He fasted, he prayed without ceasing, consistently. The issue was not that there was something wrong with the way Paul was praying. And we know this because Paul doesn't say, then the Lord told me, Paul, your prayers are weak. He doesn't say that. Notice what he says. Paul says, and he, that's God, said to me, now underline this sentence. This is what God said to Paul. He says, Paul, I'm not gonna heal you because my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in in weakness. God says, Paul, I know you. I know everything about you. And in order for me to do my work through you and in your life, I need you to lean on me. I need you to rely on me. Not your speaking ability, not your vocabulary, not your deep theological knowledge. And the only way that you're going to end up leaning on me and relying on me instead of just trusting in yourself is if you have this thorn that I'm going to allow in your life that's going to drive you back to me over and over again so that I'm your strength, so that I'm the one leading your life, so that I'm the one giving you what you need, so that you can be really effective. And then Paul responds by basically saying, he says, and you know what, church? That's what God told me, and I'm good with that. I'm good with that. He says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities 
that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Then I'm strong. When I get out of my own way and I begin relying on God, that's when I'm at my strongest. That's when God is doing the most in me and through me. And we're no different. The very best way to live this life is walking closely with Jesus. It's the best way to live now and it's the way that's gonna benefit you the most for eternity. But, but while I wish, while I wish that I was like Jacob clinging to Jesus when things are good, I wish that I was desperate for Jesus and seeking him with all my heart when things are good. I don't. And you don't either. It's when there's stress and heartbreak and pain and difficulty that those things get behind me and like two hands on my back push me toward Jesus. Push me toward Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus and I asked you, would you rather go through life walking closely with Jesus or be healed of that issue, delivered from that situation? What would you say? I, th I think most of us would say, well, I'd rather be close to Jesus. But maybe you're like, uh, no, I take the healing and deliverance, obviously. Thank you. Here's one other thing to keep in mind. You don't have a choice. You don't have a choice because our heavenly father only does what is best for us. He only does what is best for us. And because he knows that Jesus is what is best for us, he will do whatever he needs to do in our lives to get us into a meaningful, deep relationship with Jesus. And I know it's hard. I know it's painful. I know it's difficult. But here's what I know. As pain and difficulties increase, the grace of God increases all the more. You might say, this is more than I can bear. This is more than I can handle in life right now. But here's what you'll find. You'll find that God is ready to give you more of himself than you've ever had before. You might say, Jeff, I've never been this troubled. I've never been this anxious. I've never been this stressed before. Then let me tell you the truth. God is ready to let you experience his peace like you've never experienced it before. Whatever is turning up in the area of difficulty, God is turning up in the area of grace as well. If you're stressed, he'll send peace. If you can't find rest, he'll send rest. Whatever it is, he's going to give you what you need. It's an invitation. Jacob left Bethel 20 years ago. You might remember, he left with a spring in his step. Man, he was saved. He belongs to Jesus. Life is good. He was happy. But he left Peniel, the place where God gave him a new identity. He left Peniel with a limp. You see, if you... If you really want to know God, you really want to know him, and you really want to experience the deep things of God, and you want him to use you, that cannot happen without pain and discomfort. It can't be done. It would be great if we would desperately seek God in our comfort, but we don't. We don't. We seek him when things get difficult. And it's a shock for many believers to learn that God would intentionally allow pain into the life of a believer. And that's because most of us, we get so caught up in our lives here and now that we begin to believe that the most important thing is our comfort here and now. We believe that. And then we begin to believe lies like, well, if God is loving and God is good, 
then he'll focus on the most important thing, which is me being comfortable and happy here and now. But that's not so. Write this down. You see, God is more concerned with our eternal state than our present comfort. He's more concerned with our eternal state than our present comfort. You see, what real love does is it does what's best for the other person, no matter the cost. Real love does what's best for the other person, even when they're asking you to do something else. You know, my kids would love to have chocolate chips and syrups on their waffles every day. It is the desire of their heart. It is the thing that they believe would bring them meaningful happiness in their life. And you know what? I don't care. You know why? Because I know it's not good for them. And I love them. And so I'm not just going to do the thing for them which will make them go, Oh, Dad, you're so great. Thank you for the waffles and the chocolate chips. I'm actually going to do the thing that's best for them. Only on Saturdays. That's the rule in our house. Only on Saturdays. We have a heavenly father who's not like us. You see, he's not insecure. If you and I get mad at him, he's not up there going like, Oh no, what am I going to do? They don't like me right now. That's not what God is doing. He's completely secure in himself, which means when he loves us, he's able to love us in the way that is truly best for us, even if we're being little brats about it. Even if we're saying, there's no way God really loves me or this wouldn't be going on in my life. He still keeps doing what is best for us. We're gonna be in this life for, for this amount of time compared to eternity, which is just my arms going on forever. And so God says, if I love you, what am I going to do? Am I going to do the thing that's going to benefit you for this? Or am I going to do the thing that's going to benefit you for this? And the answer is obvious. And so the Lord does that which is going to benefit us the most. He says this life, which is just practice, which is just a rehearsal, which is just an audition for eternity. He says, I want you to spend this life as close to Jesus as you can so that you're as prepared and blessed in eternity as you can possibly be. Verse 32, Therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. So in honor of what happened to Jacob and where Jacob met God there at Peniel, to this day Jews don't eat that part of any animal, the meat around that part of the hip. So let me say this in conclusion. If you've never ever confessed to God who you really are, if you've never given your life to him, if you've never said, I, I, I want to be governed by God, I want to know that my past is forgiven, I want to have the blessing of God in my life, if you've never had that or done that, give your life to Jesus today. Give your life to him today or you're going to spend more years wasting time Chasing empty things that aren't going to bless you, aren't going to bring you satisfaction. You'll have a chance to do that in just a minute. Maybe you've been mad though. Maybe you've been bitter. Maybe you've been angry about a thorn in your life that, that God has allowed and it just seems like he won't remove it. I want to encourage you today, stop being angry and accept the invitation to cling to Jesus. Accept the invitation to get your peace and your hope from him instead of from that thing. And if God is allowing it to stay in your life, then God has a plan to use it in your life 
So don't miss out on what God wants to do in your life. Don't miss out. And then let's wrestle with the Lord in prayer. If you're in that place. Let's argue with him. Let's, let's command him concerning his promises. Let's seek his blessing. You know, the old hymn really is true. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And sometimes we get confused about pain and we, we fall into thinking that all pain is bad. And that pain in my life means God isn't good or God isn't with me or God doesn't love me. But when I find myself in that place with those thoughts, and, and, and I do sometimes, the solution is to go to the table of communion. We have one in the back. You'll have a chance to take it in a moment. And when I go to the, the table of communion, I'm reminded how much God loves me. You see, he loves me so much that he was beaten and bruised and murdered on a cross for me. He died for me. He, he poured out his blood for me. And as I'm reminded of that, as I take communion, I realize, Lord, you, you love me even more than I love myself. And you prove that on the cross. And, and Lord, you know what's best. You know what I need most. So God, I'm going to trust you to decide what's best for me, even if it's painful. Because when we go and have communion and we look to the cross and we remember the cross, we're reminded, oh yeah, he loves me. He loves me. So if he says this is good for me, then he's telling the truth. He's telling the truth. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the comfort of your word. Thank you that your word is honest about the fact that sometimes you use pain in our lives to bring us to you, to cause us to cling to you, so that we don't go through life looking for the blessings in places that are gonna ultimately be hollow, but that we turn to you and look to you for the blessing that we're really seeking. Father, I pray for anyone in the room right now who's going through a difficulty or a pain or experiencing a, a thorn that you are allowing in their lives. Lord, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you will meet with us, God, that you will remind every heart in this room that you are good, that you love us, that you only do what is best for us, and that, God, you'll forgive us for ever doubting that for a second because you proved your love for us when you gave up your life on the cross. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. 
If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.